Have you ever got stuck in the middle of a controversy? Is that just me? You never had any controversy in your life? Ever got stuck in the middle of a controversy? Well, this week I got stuck in the middle of a pretty bad controversy. I made a decision based on some information that I received. It was a decision that could have created a great deal of confusion and maybe even emotional pain in the life of my family. What is this decision? Well, I observed the wrong National Waffle Day. Yeah, I know, it's kind of scary, right? I mean, you know, you don't want to mess things like that up. So Wednesday night, I go home, and I'm on my way home, and I have some cinnamon waffles and some blueberry syrup. I'm really excited because I had been on the web that day and, and saw that August 5th was National Waffle Day. And after all, it was, it was on the Internet, and we know that everything on the Internet is always true, so I had no reason to doubt that it really wasn't on August 5th. The problem was it wasn't on August 5th. International Waffle Day is on March 25th. National Waffle Day in the United States is on August 24th. Those are the, the right dates. But, but somehow, August 5th got put out there and it got spread all over the web. Now, thankfully, my family was able to escape the tentacles of this controversy, and we were still able to enjoy some waffles before the end of the day. But you know what? That thing could have gone the other way at the last second. You know, you never know. You never know. If you're ever in the St. Charles area just west of Chicago, you might want to stop at Abby's Breakfast and Lunch. Abby's is a restaurant there in the St. Charles area. And Dally, it's really good because of the review that it got this past week. This is a part of that review concerning the menu. Beth Casey of the Aurora Beacon News writes about this food specialty at Abby's. A biscuit and gravy waffle with biscuit batter poured into a waffle iron served with a topping of andouille sausage gravy that gets trapped in every cranny of the biscuit waffle. <laughs> I mean, that's just phenomenal, right? I mean, everything about that just sounds incredible. I mean, even if you don't like biscuits or waffles or andouille sausage or gravy, which I'm thinking it's Christian to like at least one of those things, okay? You need to have one of them in your list. But even if you don't like any of those things, you, you still get the word picture, right? I mean, you see that waffle on the plate, and, and every little square, every little nook and cranny is, is filled with this gravy. Now, I want to flip that picture a little bit for us mentally. Do you feel trapped? Is there any area of your life that you, you feel trapped? Is there an area of your life that you feel rejected or humiliated or condemned, forgotten? Have any areas like that in your life? If so, then you're probably trying to work through it, trying to manage some of those feelings. You may be working through it by self-medicating. You might be overdoing it with food or drugs or alcohol or shopping or sports or hobbies or a number of other things, just, just putting everything that you have into some things trying to help out. And the truth of the matter is those things might give you a little bit of temporary escape, but they will not help your heart, they will not help your mind, they will not help your soul. They, they are not lasting 
Maybe you're not self-medicating. Maybe you're trying to work through these feelings of being trapped in, in a very good way. I mean, you're, you're going to counseling, you're praying, you're reading your Bible, you're doing lots of good things, but, but you still feel trapped. You still don't feel like you can break free. It's possible to have lots of good things in our lives but be missing the one thing. Phil Newton writes, We will look in every nook and cranny of religious experience to find something to satisfy our anxious souls. We'll we'll look everywhere. We'll try a little bit of everything, just, just trying to help us out. But what if I were to tell you that when it comes to having your soul satisfied, when it comes to to breaking free from those feelings of condemnation, those feelings of rejection, humiliation, those feelings of being forgotten, when it comes to breaking free from those, there's not a lot of nooks and crannies. In fact, to, to have your soul satisfied, it really only takes one nook, one cranny, not a lot, just just one. So what is this soul-satisfying solution to breaking free? Well, let's find out. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Paul writes, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It may not always feel this way, but our society functions by law. We have laws and bylaws in our homes. We have laws and bylaws at our church and at work, at school, in our government, and all kinds of areas of life. Many of these laws are very good. They're very needed. They're very helpful. Some of them don't need to have any changes. Some of them need to be improved And some of them actually need to be removed. But none of the laws are perfect. None of the laws that that we make are perfect. But God's laws are not like that. See, God's laws don't need to be changed. They don't need to be improved. They don't need to be removed. See, God's laws are actually perfect. So when we reject or neglect God's law, we're actually rejecting perfection. We are rejecting and neglecting the very plans and purposes and systems that define the universe. We're rejecting and neglecting the very plans and purposes and systems that actually are best for our heart and our mind and our soul. The Bible has an interesting way of describing that kind of rejection and neglection. It really just uses one word, sin. That's the only word that God uses to describe this type of rejection of his law is sin. See, sin makes things not right between us and God. And things not being right between us and God is not a small problem. It's kind of a big, huge, gigantic deal. You see, sin does some things that I think sometimes we forget. See, temporarily, sin will keep us out of the deepest flow of God's love and kindness and help. But if the ultimate core of sin is not dealt with, then sin will permanently separate us forever from everything that is good and happy and pure. So how do we deal with this ultimate core of sin? What is the ultimate core of sin? 
One day Jesus was talking to a crowd of folks. He was teaching them and he said something to them that I'm thinking probably sounded a bit shocking to them. They probably had never thought about things in these terms. And this is what he said, Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts. So the ultimate core of sin, according to Jesus, is actually in the heart. Now, not the, the organ that's pumping blood in our body, but, but that place where our emotions and our desires and our attitudes live. You see, I might be having a heart attack and I would be taken to the hospital and the doctor could go in and inside of my body, he could work on that organ that keeps me alive. But while he's in there, he can't go over next to my aorta and physically put a stent in my emotions. He can't put a, a stent in my attitude or my desires. There's only one person who can do that kind of heart surgery, and he did not go to medical school. Only God, only God can change a person's heart, can do heart surgery. So sin separates us from God. Sin makes things not right between us and God. Sin, by its very nature, is, is on the inside, not on the outside. It's in the core of our emotions, our attitudes, and our desires. And only God can do surgery on our heart in this spiritual sense. But here's the great news. The great news and the stunning news about who God is is that you never have to wait for the surgery. <laughs> That's just great. You see, you never, you never have to make an appointment you never have to be sixth in line waiting for the next operating room to open up. No, God is always ready. He is always available. But only God can do the surgery. We cannot do the surgery ourselves. Last week, we put it this way. If you're out in a body of water and you're, you're drowning in a whirlpool, as you begin to go under, you might reach your hand up above the surface, but you're not reaching your hand up in an effort to pull yourselves out or to save yourselves. You're reaching your hand up with a desperate hope that someone will grab your hand, that someone will rescue you. We need to be rescued, but we can't rescue ourselves. Sin causes this need for us to have surgery, but we cannot perform the surgery ourselves. We need to be saved but we cannot save ourselves. That's why we need saving grace. This is what Paul just got through writing about back in verse 11, just at the beginning of this sentence. He was writing to Titus, trying to tell him about this, this concept of saving grace. Saving grace is the unique, unmerited influence, the direct influence of God on a person's heart and soul and mind. Saving grace only comes in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Saving grace is what a person receives when they repent and they believe in Jesus and rely on Jesus and cling to Jesus and trust in Jesus as their only hope for eternity and even their only hope for today. Paul's writing of this saving grace because he wanted Titus to be sure that everybody in, in this little church on the island of Crete understood that saving grace was actually the hand that was grabbing them. And this saving grace was, was not just a one-and-done gift. Saving grace is a gift that, that keeps on giving and keeps on encouraging and keeps on teaching. See, saving grace teaches a believer to do three things primarily. Paul's talking about them in this whole section. Saving grace teaches us to deny and to live and to look. 
Saving grace teaches us to deny thinking and acting in a way like God is not God. In other words, saving grace helps us to deny living in a way and thinking in a way and talking and acting in a way that we're afraid of everything. You know, that we're anxious about everything, that we worry about everything, that we're mad about everything. Saving grace teaches us that there's going to be moments of fear, there's going to be moments of worry, but those things are not to define our life. We're supposed to remember our God is God. Saving grace also teaches us to deny thinking and acting like the systems of the world are the primary systems. There's coming a day when every single system in this world will no longer be except the system of God. That's the only system that will remain. And so saving grace teaches us to work within the systems of the world, but not to live like they are primary. That God's system, God's grace, God's kingship, God's sovereignty is over all things. Saving grace also teaches us to live in such a way that people know that when it comes to our attitudes and our opinions, our primary person driving that is God and His truth. It's not just following the opinions of somebody else or following the opinions of some other way of thinking, but it is God himself. We, we use God's truth to guide how we think and to guide what our opinions are. And saving grace also teaches us to live in a way that the people who are around us most of the time, they know that we know God. There's no doubt we live in such a way that they know that we know God. So saving grace teaches us to deny and live, but also to look. Well, to look for what? Well, primarily to look for Jesus Christ and maybe specifically to look for the return, the promised return of Jesus Christ. You see, saving grace appeared one night in Bethlehem. But it didn't just appear that one time. There is a promise that saving grace will appear again. Look back at what Paul said in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You see, at Christmas time, we sing about the first appearing of Jesus. And we have this little line that we sing Mild he lays his glory by. Great line from Charles Wesley. And it is very true about the first appearing of Jesus. But the second appearing of Jesus will not be mild. Jesus will not be laying his glory off to the side. In fact, his, his glory will be blowing the minds of the entire world. It will be blowing the eyes and the ears and the senses and the beings of every person in the world. For some people, they will be blown away with joy because they will know that putting their faith in Jesus Christ was not some religious fairy tale. And with others, they will be blown away with terror because they believed that Jesus was nothing more than a religious fairy tale, and they rejected him. The gospel promises, promises us that Jesus is going to appear again, but why should we believe that? Why should we believe that Jesus is coming back? Well, there were more than 300 things predicted about Jesus Christ hundreds of years before he was born, and he fulfilled every single one of them. And for a three-year time span, Jesus turned the world upside down with his love and his mercy, his compassion, and his supernatural authority. And during those three years, he said that he was going to be arrested and he was going to be brutally beaten and executed and that he was going to come back from the dead. 
And at the end of those three years, he was arrested. He was brutally beaten and executed. And he died for a crime and for crimes that he did not commit. But when he was completely dead, just a few days later, he was completely alive again. And then after he was alive, hundreds of non-marijuana smoking people saw Jesus with their own eyes. It was not a hallucination. They spent weeks around the person of Jesus, this risen, resurrected Christ. So here's the thing. Even if you hate Christianity, you would really have a hard time completely disproving the eyewitness accounts and the results of the resurrection. It would be a hard thing for you just to to blow off if you seriously considered them. And so if we have this fulfillment from Jesus, this movement of Jesus to perfectly and completely fulfill all of these wild, crazy events, then it seems to be not rational. It seems to be unreasonable to think that he would just be blowing smoke about coming back a second time. You see, the greatest hope that a Christian has is in this promise of the return of Christ. It is the defining hope of Christianity. It is why our religion and the religions of the world really sticks out because there is a promise of life after death and that promise has a guarantee and that guarantee is Jesus. The other nooks and crannies of life will never work. They'll they'll never give you the hope that you're looking for. There's only one nook and there's only one cranny. This is the first part of that earlier quote from Phil Newton. Grace turns our attention to Jesus Christ as our salvation. Apart from grace, we will look in every nook and cranny of religious experience to find something to satisfy our anxious souls. And we all are guilty of this. I'll I'll confess for all of us, okay? We're all guilty of this. We're all chasing after the nooks and crannies. And yet our our focus, our passion, our energy should always be directed toward Christ. This is what grace does. See, grace just keeps showing us that what we need most to be satisfied, what we need most to break free from the traps of sin or pride or fear or worry, what we need most is Jesus Christ. For our soul to be satisfied, what we need most is Jesus the Christ. Why is Jesus so satisfying? Look at verse 14. Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. This letter would have been read over and over again in the church. So see, I mean, I'll be through with Titus before the end of the year, you know. I mean, they they would do it for another two or three years, you know, you never know. But this letter will be read over and over and over again. And we already know from earlier, because Paul addressed them by name, that in this church there were slaves, there were bondservants. And so you have to imagine that at this point when the letter was read, you can almost see one of them raising their hand and saying, hey, Titus, can can you go back and read that part again? Redeemed, rescued, purchased, freed. 
See, that's a hope they wanted to look at again and again and again. That's a hope they wanted to hear again and again and again. One of the most riveting books in the Bible is the book of Hosea. Hosea has the account of a faithful husband named Hosea and a very unfaithful wife named Gomer. John Reed has very creatively retold the story from Hosea, from Hosea's point of view, through a monologue titled, Hosea, the story of a love that would not die. The entire monologue you can find online at alampthatburns.net, alampthatburns.net. But Reed does a great job of capturing a scene in this story. So repeatedly, over and over again, Gomer has been unfaithful to Hosea. She has left him and abandoned him over and over and over. And now she finds herself in a very rough spot. And this is where Reed picks up describing the story. It was over a year ago that it happened. The blush of spring was beginning to touch our land. In the midst of my morning hour of meditation, God seemed to move me to go among the people of Samaria. A sense of deep anticipation stirred me. I wandered through the streets. Soon I was standing in the slave market. It was a place I loathed. Then I saw a priest of Baal lead a woman to the slave block. My heart stood still. It was Gomer. Stark naked, she stood on the block, but no man stared in lust. She was broken, haggard, and thin as a wisp of smoke. Her ribs stood out beneath the skin. Her hair was matted and touched with streaks of gray, and in her eye was the flash of madness. I wept. Then softly the voice of God's love whispered to my heart. I paused, confused. The bidding reached 13 shekels of silver before I fully understood God's purposes. I bid 15 shekels of silver. There was a pause. A voice on the edge of the crowd shouted, 15 shekels and a homer of barley. 15 shekels, a homer and a half of barley, I cried. And the bidding was done. As I approached the slave block, a murmur of disbelief surged through the crowd. They knew me and they knew Gomer. As I mounted the block, they leaned forward in anticipation. Surely I would strike her dead on the spot for her waywardness. But my heart flowed with love. I spoke to a merchant in a nearby booth. Bring that white robe on the end of the rack. I paid him the price he asked, then I tenderly drew the robe around Gomer's emaciated body and said to her, Gomer, you are mine by the natural right of a husband. Now you are also mine because I have bought you for a price. You will no longer wander for me or play the harlot. You must be confined for a time, and then I will restore you to the full joys of womanhood. She sighed, and fainting fell into my arms. I held her. You are never too far away to be held. Never. Saving grace is so unique and so unmerited and such a direct influence from God that there's no place that it cannot reach. 
And on the days where you feel like you are trapped and humiliated and condemned and forgotten, there is still this grace that holds unfaithful rebels. This grace that pursues. This grace that loves. See, you could be the most moral, religious, lost person in the world. Or you could be the most immoral, wild, sinful, lost person. Either way, you're never beyond the reach. You're never beyond the power of saving grace. Regardless of who we are, regardless of what we've done, there's never a time that we are too far away to be, and don't miss this word, redeemed. I, I, I just can see the slaves and the bondservant. Titus, read that one more time. Because they may never experience freedom on this earth, but they knew they had this promise of freedom that would last forever. Redemption, being purchased. And what is this redemption all about? Why does Jesus redeem? Look at verse 14 again. To redeem and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Part of the reason that we stay trapped, part of the reason that we we can't break free sometimes from the, the power and the influence of sin is because we actually forget who we are. We, we don't remember who we are. We live, as we saw in the video earlier, like hopeless corpses instead of like hope-filled conquerors. Listen, if you're here today and, and your heart would honestly tell you that you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, that you know that you have been saved and rescued, then you have good news of great joy. See, you once were, according to how the Bible defines salvation, you once were dead in your sins, but now you're alive. You once were blind, but now you can see. You once were lost, but now you have been found. This God, the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, He set His affections on you. The Creator God of the universe set His affections on you. And from what we see in his book, he redeemed you through the precious blood of his own precious son so that you could be a child of God, so that you could be a member of his chosen people, so that you could be a citizen in his holy nation, so that you can be a prince, a princess, a king, a queen in his royal court. How in the world can that happen? How in the world can we get into the court of God? This is how Paul told the folks at the Colossian church. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, we're part of God's family because we've been redeemed by Christ. We are now a a member of his chosen people because we've been redeemed by Christ. We can have victory over sin because we've been redeemed by Christ. This redemption brings hope. This redemption means that we are part of a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We're part of the family of God. That is astounding. That is incredible. And that is stunning. And yet this is what the redemption of Jesus does. 
See, saving grace turns our attention to Christ. Saving grace is the kind of grace that motivates us away from being trapped, away from sin. Saving grace turns us away from sin and begins to help us see and look and remember that there is coming a day where we will step into eternity and we will see a welcome sign with our name on it that just has two words, welcome home. Welcome home. That's, that's what it means to be redeemed. It's not just something fun that we can do on Sunday. It's it's not just a a good reason to have devotions during the week. It means when we're in the hospital, we have hope. It means when the person we love the most is gone, we have hope. Our redemption in Jesus always gives us hope because we have every reason to believe that his promise is true. Salvation is incredible. Saving grace is incredible. If we can start to get saving grace, if we can start to to love saving grace, if we can start to understand saving grace, you know what it'll do? Not just will we feel less trapped, but if we get saving grace, it's going to change how we talk to our spouse. If we get saving grace, it's going to change what we expect from our children. If we get saving grace, it's going to change how we think about people who are not Christians and people who don't go to church and people who don't agree with us and people who are not like us. If we get saving grace, then we're going to change the way we act toward each other too. You see, saving grace impacts everything. It affects everything. Realizing that you have been redeemed moves And what does it move you to do? Look at the last part of verse 14. It moves you to be zealous for good deeds. Now, again, this doesn't mean that, you know, do a lot of good deeds and you'll go to heaven. That's not what it means. What it does mean is this. It means in the moment when you really want to sin, and listen, you're still going to sin, okay? (laughs) I'd love to tell you life's perfect and you're never going to do the wrong thing again. But you will and I will. But here's the thing. What we want to do is live not controlled by that. We want to live in such a way that that when that moment of sin comes, that we remember saving grace, and we begin to go, whoa, I need to to be motivated to think different right now. I don't need to participate in this. I don't need to look at this. I don't need to say that because I've been redeemed, because I've, I've been saved. See, saving grace changes how we think, and it moves us into a whole other category where we are zealous for good deeds. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm getting ready to, so I'll ask for forgiveness later. So I had somebody this week come up to me, nobody in the church, someone that I've met out in the community, and this is what they asked me. So where do you go to be grumpy? I was like, what? You're just always in a good mood. Where do you go to be grumpy? And I said, yeah, I got some places. (laughs) I mean, I'd love to tell you I'm in a good mood all the time, but no, it doesn't really. I got some grumpy spots, you know. But I love that notion, and I wish I could live up to that notion. That's that's the movement, you know. We want to have grumpy spots. We don't want to be a grump, you know. We want to have moments of fear. We don't want to be crazy, afraid of everything in the world. 
We want to have moments where we get frustrated and angry, but, but not then be the part of who we are. For the most part, we want to be zealous for the good. We want to have zeal for the good things. I love what J.C. Ross says about this. A zealous man only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. It's the one thing. What's your one thing? I mean, what are you known for? What would your wife or your husband or your children say is the greatest passion in your life? What is it that compels you and constrains you and controls you? Is it this desire to please God? There's a story told about a man who was visiting an estate in Italy. The owner was not there. In fact, the only person that was there was the caretaker. So the man started talking to him and asked him how long he had been taking care of the estate. He said, I've been doing it for 25 years. He goes, wow, 25 years. He goes, so, so this is just one of your owner's residences. Yeah. So in, in 25 years, how many times has he been here? He said, he's been here four times. He goes, four times, 25 years. Yeah. When was the last time he came? 12 years ago. Last time he came was 12 years ago. So the visitor, he said, 12 years ago? He said, I'm, I'm walking through this house. I'm, I'm walking through the gardens. I'm, I'm looking at the entire estate. It is immaculate. I mean, it looks in, in such perfect shape. You'd think that he's coming tomorrow. The caretaker said, no, sir, not, not tomorrow. It's prepared as if he's coming today. It's kept in shape in case he comes today. Listen, don't be trapped by fear, by sin, by pride. Don't, don't, or even religion for that matter. Don't, don't fall into those nooks. Don't fall into those crannies. Train your heart. Teach your heart. Scream at your heart. Sing to your heart. Whatever you have to do, keep telling yourself that, that there is one place you can turn. There, there is one place. There's one nook. There's one cranny that has everything that will satisfy your soul. If you're here today and you're still rejecting Jesus as a fairy tale, if you're still neglecting him as, as something that's nice and religious but not the truth of your soul, then I plead with you to repent and be redeemed. Find out what it means to be held by the creator of the universe. And if you are a believer, if you are no longer rejecting and neglecting, if you have received Christ as your Savior, then let me say this. Be more zealous for your Redeemer. Be more zealous to live for Him and serve Him. Because the reality is, He very well may be coming on this day, on this hour. Let Him find us loving Him and serving Him. Let's pray.